get started, Mr. Bradley. I think that's a damn fine idea, Ant. Right then, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Anthony Price. And I'm Jonathan Bradley. And in the UK, we had a bank holiday weekend, which has put us into a complete state of flux. I don't know what flipping day it is. Well, it's podcast recording day, but I never remember what day of the week that is. And I've always been confused. We moved house last August, JV. And as you know, and in fact, actually, I think the listeners know because the, the, the podcast started in our old house when we were going through the, the sales debacle, if you remember. Um, anyway, in our old house, the bin collection was on a Thursday. In our new house, it's on a Wednesday. And I still think it's a Thursday. So yesterday was a complete mess because I thought it was Tuesday. It wasn't. It was Wednesday. Bin collections on a Wednesday. And I had to run up the road with our wheelie bin chasing them down. And they were very kind and stopped, laughed at me, you know, running along in my rather overweight um, post-COVID bulge and with a wheelie bin to empty. So so here's a poll question for our listeners. Hmm. Um, do you, A, uh, know what day of the week it is by the <laughs> bin day, or B, do you know what day of the week it is because of our glorious Global Leadership Podcast, Ooh. A or B? Well, the, the problem is, JB, is the live audience will always be joining us on a Thursday, but I know that our most popular download day is a Saturday, bizarrely. Ah. Uh. I don't know why that yes. is. We do get, obviously, when the, the when it goes live and the subscribers, we get a spike because all the subscribers get it. But then if you look at outside of the, the published day, um, Saturday's our most popular download day. Um, I remember getting an email from Maria, who, um, Maria, you know Maria, she, we, we worked mm-hmm. with her once upon a time in Greece. This is Miami. No, Marie, no, not Anna Maria, Maria in, uh, uh, Maria P in Greece. Uh, won't oh, oh yes. So she's a regular listener and she listens to us at the weekend when she's doing her Sunday Irony. roast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So she cooks on a Sunday and listens to us in the background. So Maria, hello to you. And what day of the week is it for you? There's the challenge. And that's why we always say good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good overnight, because we just don't know. T- talking about bins, this is slightly off the subject of global leadership although it might have some metaphorical um value Hmm. i don't know but someone stole my blue recycling bin in the street Hmm. which is very very bad and i have now taken it back and i've sprayed (laughs) the number of my house on it like a dog weeing on a tree oh dear my bin Bugger off. Do I? Is this another a, poll? Wow. This is, this yeah, is, this is fantastic. I'm getting quite excited by polls these yeah, days. Yeah. So, do, A, do I just n- not say anything ever and just sweep it under the carpet and just kind of pretend it never happened? Or, B, do I puff my chest out and go and um, have a little bit of a honest conversation? I haven't got a C, actually. I was going to say, is there a C? <laughs> quite, well, maybe there is a C. Um, yeah, on the chat box, if you could <laughs> put in a C, that would be great. I, I think it's probably, um, maybe it's just punching them on the nose is C as an option. Wow. So uh, option A is to ignore it. Option B is to go in and have an honest conversation with a very high level of assertion. Or C, go straight to Armageddon and punch them on the nose. What do you think, Ant? Which option would you go for? Um, being being Ant, um, is this the first occasion this has happened? It is the first occasion. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick A. 
Um, I would ignore. Oh, you're just gonna just ignore for the first. If it happens again, then then I will get a bit more puffy. If there had been an option that would just kind of do a passive aggressive in passing of um, <laughs> I saw you accidentally took my bin the other day. Don't do it again. Then I would have probably chosen that one. But um, with the with the polar opposites of uh, of uh, your suggestions of options, I, I'm forced to go with option A. Do you, do you know this there's, actually... There's other A's in the chat box from my audience, by the way, that I've chosen. <laughs> so. Oh, really? Oh, excellent. Um, well, I, I think that this is a perfect segue into uh, toxic organisations and toxic cultures. Hmm. And how does it affect employees? Is this our topic for today, then? Well, I thought I'd throw it in. No, because it's nice. I have, no, you know, nice. I've been think, thinking about that kind of area recently. And... Um, there's this little piece, and it's in uh, Management Today, and it's um, it's by Stephen Jones, who's one of the uh, editors there, but he uh, picks up on a piece by um, a professional mediator, a guy by the name of Clive Lewis, and he uh, wrote this thing um, of um, how to stop uh, the office returning into conflict, and he... He, um, he talks about um, a study uh, within the British National Health Service. And do you know how many months, on average, it takes to resolve workplace conflict from the moment it's sown to the mo moment it's solved? How many months, Ant, do you think it takes to resolve, on average... Uh, these situations in the NHS? Um, I'm going to say possibly 10 months. And higher? 24 months? No, 19 <laughs> months. Wow. And actually, to be precise, 19 months and two days. So a study of 40 mediation cases in the NHS revealed that there's an average of 19 months and two days between the seeds of workplace conflict being sown and it being solved. Can you imagine the cost of that? Not just financially, um, but in terms of stress, uh, absence from stress, mistakes made, delays and so on. The actual cost is estimated at 500 million. That's crazy. 500 million because of those 19 months. It 19 months it takes to solve these cases. Um, so this this guy, I, I really like this um, piece by Clive Lewis. Well, it's actually, it's not by Clive Lewis. It's about Clive Lewis by Stephen Jones. And this is what he says. We let disputes simmer because people feel ill-equipped to be able to handle hard decisions, he says. Um, and managers can also hold the Panglossian view that conflict will eventually just go away. A bit like me ignoring the fact that my, uh, my little blue waste cycling box had been nicked by my neighbour. I, I, I took the Panglossian view. Don't you love that word, Panglossian? It's 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 certainly one that has been not used frequently in our conversations, and I'm not sure it'll be used again beyond today's podcast. But yes, it's a lovely. Uh, it's well, it basically, it's 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 what it means is is rose tinted. Um, mm. 
pan, rather like sort of pan, <laughs> pans people, pansexual. Um, I couldn't think of another pan for a second. Um, so basically, it's kind of everything. I think roughly uh, the sort of, I think its origin is Greek and it's um, pan is sort of everything. Um, and uh, uh, the gloss part is the tongue, panglossian. So it's it's um, thinking about uh, everything being rose tinted and it'll be okay in the end. And that's what managers tend to, to kind of get into these days. Um, so um, he's arguing that actually sometimes we need to nip things in the bud um, when they surface. Mm. Um, and, you know, sometimes you end up with organisational systems that are slow, painful, bureaucratic, um, and non-inclusive decision-making uh, can all contribute to this toxic mess. Uh, and organisations have to work really hard um, to ensure that the infra infrastructure, uh, 19 months to resolve a flipping issue, uh, doesn't get in the way uh, of the problem. Doesn't it just go back to having a decent conversation, really? It does. And, and so uh, as you've been explaining your your case, I've been reflecting on points in my career where there has been toxic cultures and what was done to act on it. You and I, in some of our leadership work, we talk to clients about those high-skill, low-will type of people yeah. that often are those toxic animals in a business. They are highly competent. They're a great salesperson. They're a great lawyer, an accountant, whatever it might be. But the style of which they do things with people internally is pretty disruptive. It causes anxiety. It causes people to leave and they don't want to work with that person anymore. And it comes to a point where, to your point, buyers not doing something sooner, maybe as a leader, we are not doing enough to mitigate the situation. In fact, arguably, respect has been lost by others in our team because we are seemingly accepting of their behavior being okay, which is what creates that culture. So it's an interesting one. But then I, you see, my original point I was going to come back on is, is it different dependent on the complexity of the business in terms of the speed of resolution? Because the NHS, for those international listeners, is our British um, National Health Service. Um, which um, naturally is incredibly bureaucratic. It's obviously run by public money as well, which therefore adds extra layers of bureaucracy um, and is quite disjointed in how they do things from, from, from town to town around the country. So I can imagine that that is the case. But actually, when I then thought about it, my point is muted because there can be toxic people in any size of organisation. And if we as a people leader don't nip it in the bud, then I do think that it can be even more impactful, even with a slighter delay. So the the impact can be more pronounced quicker in a smaller business because if we lose 20% of our workforce because of one person and we do nothing about it, that 20% could be six people. And six people is, is actually not a big number in itself, but 20% of our workforce lost because of one person can have a huge impact on a business's performance. And you and I before have, JB, spoken about actually sometimes we need to nip it in the bud and get rid of these people for fear of it actually genuinely damaging the business and i think you had reference of someone that you fired with enthusiasm on the basis that by keeping the business would probably be damaging to the business's stability based on their attitude not their competence 
and it was uh, a, a it, it turned out, I mean, it was a risky strategy because they were massive revenue earner. Uh, and I was very worried about doing it. I had sleepless nights uh, in doing this. And I had, I had an invisible pressure on me from above uh, not to get rid of this person. Uh, who and it came from several angles, and it didn't. They didn't want to be quoted, and it, but it's up to you. It is up to you at the end of the day, Jonathan, to make this decision. Well, thank you for that support. Anyway, so I did make the decision, uh, but at the same time, I had a strategy to get everybody actively acting on those clients, and 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 went into pretty good one-to-one conversations with everybody about our culture and how we wanted to. Um, work and you know become better because of it and that we were under pressure because we were potentially going to lose revenue well we didn't we made more um i wanted to um just add on some dimensions to this idea of nipping things in the bud rather than leaving it to brew for months and months and months um and this guy clive lewis who i i think is um really impressive and he's a professional mediator i was going to say he's and not that uh isn't there a labor politician clive lewis in the uk not that i'm aware of anyway, i don't it's not the same I person that's the important I thing i don't know anyway here's here's a question that he poses which is um has covid19 changed people's experience of toxic behaviors or will it lead to tensions in the future? He goes on to say, mm. um, some environments were toxic before COVID set, set in. Uh, the pandemic, uh, working from home and so on have exacerbated it. Um, we have we have definitely, you know about this, Ant, um, because I think you, you're, you're actually dealing with quite, not personally, but I think you're, you're actually acting on it with your business. But we have seen an increase in anxiety and stress levels. Um, some people are thinking about their future. Um, they may or may not have been furloughed, uh, but they might be concerned about the longevity of the business. Um, that plays out in how people might interact with colleagues and contribute to environments becoming toxic. The next question, oh. which I which I, I to make think that is, first one first. Told them, yeah. So that was how how COVID nineteen changed people's experience of toxic behaviours. Um, has COVID-19 changed people's experience of toxic behaviours or will it lead to tensions in the future? And here's, here's this is, I'm, I'm going to stop doing these first when I've done this one because I think there's lots of meat for us to um, chew into here. Mm. Here's the second question. How do managers stop the return to the office causing conflict? Here's, here's this, a, a bit of a hypothesis from him. Many people have become comfortable uh, working from home works for them and their family. So there are potentially very difficult conversations to be had when employers want to encourage people to come back to the office. This is effectively a ticking time bomb. Wowzers. Um, and this coincides, mm. for the recorded listeners, this coincides with um, some news on BBC today that almost all of the 50 UK's biggest employers on the FTSE 100, the top 50, all apart from uh, seven of them, have said that they are now going to embrace a mix of working from home and office working. Um, so look, I'm, I'm going to go with the first question first because I think they are connected. So you, you asked about behavioural tensions exasperated as a result of COVID-19. Um, I think there is the risk of it 
brewing without it being nipped in the bud. And I think that remote leaders could be guilty of using that time to hope that things would just wash away with other things that are going on. Um, in one of our leadership programs around remote working, actually, we talk about the importance of not excluding those difficult people traditionally because now we have an excuse to not have to look at them every day and get angry about their toxic nature in the workplace uh, and actually use this as a relationship reset opportunity to build a relationship. Um, and in some cases, workplaces have done really well because all of a sudden, I've previously only looked at you in this very clinical corporate environment and now behind you, I can see pictures of your children. I can see your dog, your cat. I can see your wife walking past, your husband, your brother, your sister, your auntie. And that creates an opportunity to, to kind of build on a human-to-human -human relationship. No so, focus and value. Absolutely. So I do think, however, um, that there will have been an increase in toxic culture if a leader has not communicated sufficiently you and i talk in a remote space about there is it's almost impossible to not sorry it's impossible to be labeled as over communicating remotely um so long as you're not just spamming everybody actually if you're picking up the phone and talking to people and campaigning what the business needs to do and and to do it in the right way and tell stories and excite people then actually th there's no limit to how much you could do i think where tension and toxicity in a workplace can be worse as a result of COVID is burying the head in the sand and worse still, not uh, celebrating the small successes. Um, because if there is a vulnerability of the business as a result of COVID, um, people are going to be more nervous and jittery about anything because um, they don't want to lose their job. And if, if the sector they're working in is also suffering, hospitality is a good example of this, I guess. Um, people are going to start behaving slightly unusually because of it. So I think that it's it's quite subjective to the situation. But what I would say is that I know of a, so I'll use hospitality as an example. I know the chief operating officer of a British, um, they're not kind of a bar restaurant chain. They're kind of one of these quirky experience type of bar restaurant chains, concept bars, I think they're called, aren't they? Anyway, he's COO of this company and they have gone over and above, even with their employees furloughed, to keep engagement high and their culture is brilliant. People are looking forward to going back to work. They're on social media talking about how supportive that company's been and they've used their culture to enhance the relationship with their people in COVID. It's the businesses, I think, that have traditionally been quite cold anyway, where this toxic culture has been allowed to go unchecked, if you will, and to your previous point, not nipped in the bud. Um, that's the first one. Your second question in summary again was? I'd, I really like what you're saying there, and And it's almost like if you don't recognise um, those, if you didn't recognise those toxic things beforehand, mm. Uh, before COVID, and now we're going into this sort of return, tentative return, and I've got some thoughts about that that are alarming me. Um, I think you could have toxic on toxic on toxic. I think we could be... Didn't uh, this... Brittany write a song about that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not going to sing it because I can't even remember the words. Ooh, but it's got toxic in it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, I, I think that the, the risks for the manager, particularly the manager, the the manager in the front line, uh, is is going to take the brunt 
of this ticking time bomb and i'm i'm rather worried about that so so that that question deals with the idea of um covid-19 um changing the experience of toxic behaviors i think that we need to prepare managers for for a lot of different things to come the next point uh, is the question about uh, how do managers stop um the return to the office causing conflict which is this toxic on toxic on toxic are managers ready for this we you know we have um very very different political environments right now different to where they were 2 years ago maybe um we got a lot of uncertainty uh we've got environment issues um hitting um more and more and more and people saying i'm never going to fly again and other people saying don't be daft i'm going to fly for the rest of my life and stuff you uh we've got um black lives matters we've got working from home where people do that little quotey thing um where some people think I, and there was some chief executive this week goldman sachs saying, i think goldman sachs um saying that it's all a load of old nonsense get the people back to work um all of that uh is quite divisive and i i'm quite worried um that question i think is a brilliantly posed question mm. how do managers stop the return to the office causing conflict right here's There my here's my starter for 10 then um or perhaps four um um there is going to be there's look there's again let's go back to our toxic people um they will find fault in anything and we just need to accept that is how it is i think there is going to be in some organizations the difficulty of head office staff and client facing or customer facing staff that require them to be in a fixed location so of course if i'm um you know a a managing director of a supermarket chain my head office workers it could be perfectly reasonable for them to be based remotely because actually they're visiting sites and stores and their collaboration can be done remotely fine um and therefore the store staff may have that envy of that um which you know what if that then can be flipped to be a positive thing about your career aspirations then fine and i also think that that there are people out there that would openly say that they do prefer to go to a fixed location for work rather than working from home dependent on the nature of the job so i think from a leadership perspective um i think where possible based on the environment in which you operate consistency and fairness for the types of roles and people that you hire are important um and um i think the the likes of this goldman sachs ceo that is demanding people come back to the office people will vote with their feet um if they don't like yes. it now and now i think i think we all can agree most people now would agree that those that have been home working for a year now me and jb have been home working for for 6 years and to jb's point working from home um was a bit of a sore subject where actually pre-covid most businesses sometimes frowned upon remote working because they genuinely believed that no work was done and actually now anyone's now anyone that has done home working for a prolonged period of time will actually see it's more exhausting than going to the office because you wake up at work you go to sleep at work 
and your commute to home from a chaos of a meeting to walking to the dinner table with screaming children, there isn't even a transition time. And that is quite challenging. So I don't think many people would argue that they would want to work exclusively from home. I think um, I think businesses that are clever will be much more agile in their approach and encourage people to come together where feasible to collaborate. But actually, when they are sat at a desk, that desk doesn't need to be in a central office anymore. Um, I, I can tell you that whenever, so you and me again, working remotely for six years, I would travel to offices to host learning events, for example, with you, um, as you and me traveled to ridiculous number of countries in 2019. Um, and when I wasn't training, I would go to the office one day a fortnight. That day I was in the office, I would get no work done. I would, but I wouldn't get anything on my to-do list done because that time would be literally wall to wall with let's grab a coffee. So I'd literally end up booking a meeting room and I would have a carousel of people coming through the meeting room for that day. And then any gaps I did have, I'd do an office walk around and then I got stopped at every angle again for the same reason. So That's because you're so popular though. I'd like to think so, yes. But uh, what what's interesting um, in, in answer to the question around conflict, I think we need to really rewrite how people work in an office and what do they need to be in an office for and what don't they need to be in an office for. And that should be the basis. So the, the 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 type of work that they're doing, what is it that they're doing from day to day, what requires them to be in office versus doesn't, and then you build it out that way. Because if we can help people understand in a business, the reason these people can work remotely is because it's a much easier sell to have to your people. Um, you know, this person can't work in the office um, or doesn't need to work in the office, um, et cetera, et cetera. But to bring people in the office for power over purposes, you ain't going to win if there's no value in them being there. Now, I'm also aware, to your point, politically, it's a bit sensitive because the government clearly want people to go back to city centres for work because otherwise there is going to be a huge commercial property um, decline, which a number of pension funds are hugely reliant upon for their income. Uh, secondly, the uh, incomes that come from that footfall that goes into city centres in terms of bars, restaurants, um, card shops, news agents, uh, convenience stores are also suffering, which clearly also has an impact. Then you also add in the fact that public transport infrastructure that's been invested in heavily over the last 15, 20 years to bring people efficiently to city centres is now going to be almost redundant, arguably. And I don't know about you, I've not heard a mention in the last three or four months of um, the HS2 train line across the UK. For those of you that are international, um, there's this fast train that will get you to Manchester in an hour and 35 minutes, if I'm not mistaken, which is an hour and a half off your journey time, effectively. So all these things um, are no doubt bubbling away in the business owners and leaders' minds. But for me, the simple answer, I've, I think I've stolen too much time here, JBA, so I'm getting all animated. I hope this is not boring. No, I love you being animated. Um, the I'm simple thinking, answer would be... Carry on, you might get pixelated, I don't know. <laughs> um, the simple answer for me would be um, look at the requirements of what is needed in a workplace before deciding what that policy should be. And be careful, because I promise you, I know a number of people in businesses at the moment that are saying, if I'm forced to go and work from the office five days a week, I'm going to go to an employer which will happily allow me to work in the office three days a week. For me, if I was in an essential office, um, and his, his, his oh, but there's one more point, sorry. 
I also noticed. God, blimey! Sorry, it's no, okay. I know. I love you going on one of these. It's it's a it's a roller coaster. It Carry is. On. It is. So there's there's. I was reading. I always. I'm always interested in reading the comments of um, of the articles. In fact, I sometimes go to them before reading the article to kind of see what the consensus of the audience, because that for me tells you more. Well, dependent mm. BBC, you can get a good mix. You have both left and right. Um, you know, there's no point in reading the comments of the Daily Mail or the Mirror because you're going to get either extreme left or extreme right and typically not much else. So you're then in these little echo rooms. But um, one comment that came and it was a article, I believe, on BBC two weeks ago that was suggesting employers were saying to people, you can work from the office or you can work from home. If you work from home, you need to take a 10% pay cut. Um, now, I sit wearing the hat of the employee and I then put my hat on as a CFO or CEO and think the logic through in this. The employee's thinking, that's outrageous. You want me to take a pay cut for that. And actually you're saving money because you've not got the requirement of a desk space in central London. And I know, by the way, from experience of having office space in London, um, it can be you know, 10, 15 grand per employee per year for their desk and their, their business rates and the, you know, the, the cost that goes into it. Anyway, on the flip side, here is the risk if people don't take the 10% pay cuts to have the privilege of working from home. And that is when that role is vacated, it is no longer needed in the UK. If we do not show some flexibility, I hate to say it, as employees, because ultimately, why do I need to hire someone? If, if it's a remote working role, do I need to hire them in central London? No, I can hire someone in Hull and the salary is 50% cheaper because the cost of living is 50% cheaper. So I think this levelling up around the country is going to be very interesting to watch because people are now escaping to all parts of the country to benefit from their... their, their We're fun. all going to get levelled down. And this is this is the thing, <laughs> because actually if, if an employer's employees are saying, no, that's outrageous, and then the employer goes, fine, I'll just pay the same salary, work from home then, yes, we're benefiting here consumers it will drive the prices down because there will be another company that is making savings from the 10 percent pay cuts and the savings in the city of the desk space that may bring down their price base to make sure they maintain a sharp you know a market share if they don't then another company that may be cleverer because they're hiring people in cheaper parts of the country because they're all remote workers may be able to be more competitive on price because your cost base is being maintained highly because you're short-term thinking is let's keep the employees happy by letting them have the hurt working from home yes they're not having to pay commuting costs they've actually had an eight percent pay increase there's an awful lot of macro and microeconomic things going on and, and, as, a, and as a business leader it, it does bother me when we're hiring people um, and making sure that our pricing policy is competitive and just not knowing what our competition is going to do um you know uh, you're right. I think there is going to be a potential leveling down. I do think that the home counties, the Kents, the Hampshires, the Londons are probably going to struggle in the next few years because people are deserting the city centres um, and people won't be able to afford to move. There may be negative equity situations potentially if we are not. See and this other thing is what happens if we don't relocate that role abroad to be competitive, because actually a desk in, in Serbia is makes no difference to me. I don't see them anyway. We can have all our employees in Serbia. 60% discount on my headcount, equally as capable because they're all remote workers. So I, I think there is an awful lot of risks with bringing people into an office, not bringing them back into the office, 
by giving them incentives or disincentives to be or not be in the office. There is so much. My brain is empty. I'm quiet now. Oh, is that it? Done. You, you stopped in mid-flight. Did I? Oh, sorry. So oh, con- I didn't realise it's coming to an end. The conclusion is, <laughs> be careful. And I don't know what the answer is. Okay, so let me ask you. The, and the moral of the story is... As you slap your coffee. Um, the moral of the story is that um, there is not just the what's right for the people thinking around bringing people back to an office. You need to really rethink your business. What is the need of a commercial space? What's the commercial benefit of offering agile working? What is right for the people and the business in terms of what's going to keep the business ticking over? Um, and how do you create harmony between those people that now can work from home permanently versus those that can't because of the nature of their role? Those are some of the things I would want to think about before making a decision. Just as a final kind of remark, our business, every employee is a home worker. Um, and we are uh, we uh, have an office space, which is purely uh, a meeting room for clients and people to come together to collaborate. We have no fixed desks in our business. This is um, a very interesting moment in history. I think I think you have um, just exposed. Oh, the... excuse me. <laughs> You've exposed the false um, model of everybody going back to work in a city, in a city centre, in an office, in the 21st century. It is a false model. If uh, you think about that as a model for our sustainability, for our growth, um, for the way we do things from here, I think it's a false model. And I think you've exposed it uh, really well. And it's exposed on several different levels. It's exposed um, as a bad idea for the employee. I think (coughs) equally it's exposed as a bad idea uh, for the uh, boss. And I am reminded of a brilliant book that I read a few years ago, which I think is now more relevant than ever, and it's called Why Right Brainers Will Rule the World. <laughs> and I think there's a, I think there's something in the front of that which I can't quite remember, but it's by this brilliant guy called Daniel Pink. And he wrote this book to say that so many of our roles will be um, sent off elsewhere. Um, and this is before AI actually really started uh, rearing its head, ugly or otherwise. And he he argued that, you know, the idea of us all going into offices and working in that way was frankly ridiculous. Um, if we are using our rational brains, i.e. our left brains, to do administration, um, legal, accountancy, um, you know, whatever whatever it happens to be, all of this is going to end up elsewhere. And, and I think I think he thought that it would end up in places like Asia and 
so on. And I guess there's truth in all of that as well. But I think uh, we're all going to be doing that, aren't we? We're going to be taking work and doing it at home. Mm. Um, and I think the office is going to become irrelevant. The office is going to become redundant. I think what will happen is that there will be opportunities to meet colleagues and do things with colleagues. But I think that's going to be more to do with psychological safety. I think it'll be more to do with team building. I think it will be more to do with knowing and focusing and valuing each other in a very different way. I don't think we've seen that um, on a large scale yet. No. But uh, what's the point of spending 15 grand a month for a seat, a table, um, an air, when you don't need to? I, I do. I, I was persuaded by your argument that we're all in this together. The employee, if it's necessary to be competitive uh, with someone who doesn't have 15 grand, was it a month? No, um, it, it was between 15 and 18 we were paying in London per desk it worked out so, per desk for the yeah, year so yeah. for the, for Sorry, the year okay. so that, that's I, business rates electric so that all in we knew we had to budget between 15 and 18k per okay. individual per year for the desk space i guess there are some offices where that might be the case where it's 15 grand a month yeah, probably geez, yeah. Canary Wharf, um yeah view. I, I would imagine but um you know why would you do that and when you've got a competitor who like you a disruptive business um is employing people all from home um, all very effective at what they do uh, with a very, very clear message um, that you don't need uh, to spend a boatload of money on learning and development face to face. You can do it uh, very effectively uh, through uh, virtual communication. Um, but I, so uh, I I I really get what you've just said, and I, and I think we are at a critical point now. Yeah. And I think um, to use that lovely word that we had right at the beginning, which is the Panglossian view of life. Twice I've heard um, that word twice in a we've day. Had, we've had to, you won't be forgetting it now, yeah. uh, although you might. I don't know. We're coming up to the weekend. What was that crazy word that JB was on about? <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, that Panglossian view, it'll all be okay, it'll be fine, we'll go back to normal. I mean, my God, if I had a tenor for every time I have heard someone say that over the last three months, well, it will all soon go back to normal. No, it won't. No. I'd be tempted to use an expletive, but I'm not going to. I think you've already dropped a swear that means we have to mark it as explicit anyway. I've been good today. You've been... A li- have I, think, I? I haven't. Have I, I think I really? In, I think I in the want. first, yeah. In the chat box, feel free. Anyone Sheepers, in the live audience. Creepers, creepers. Yeah. I can't believe that I... It was a light one. It wasn't a, It wasn't an F-bomb or anything like that. So. Was it an S? Possibly. Uh, anyway, um, we can't send this one off to BBC Radio 2 as our audition tape, that's for sure. Um, not yet. No. I think in about a year's time, I think we might be ready. Um, but to- maybe... Maybe the BBC World Service. I I did have a message from someone yesterday who said, have we ever thought of going on BBC at the weekend to do some sort of a newspaper review on a Sunday? Because I think we'd be quite funny. three o'clock in the morning Yeah, probably. I thought, yeah, our language is far too colourful. It's a bit of risk on the airways. Ofcom would be hearing about us too quickly. I'd do a one-off just for a laugh. Yeah, pre-record it so we can then edit out all the (laughs) F-bombs. 
Yeah. Um, anyway, it's it's so it's an interesting article, um, and it's definitely it's 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 a it's a huge conversation, toxic and it remote is, it is and a, COVID and yeah. It's a massive conversation, and um, and I I think what you you do with your business, uh, I think is going to help managers prepare uh, for this quasi return to the office um and to be able to have those conversations and and to be ready for those conversations quickly and not to uh, hide them under the carpet because all of the things that we've just look how passionate you were how how excited we get on these subjects um i think that we we know that that so many things at work land uh, on the shock absorber that 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 is the manager right in the middle of it all and i worry that they're going to have um this quasi work world um and some people complaining that they're having to be in work and others thinking i'm complaining because i have to be i i'm i i wrote it down earlier um it'll be it'll be the battle of the innies and the outies you know i'm i'm an innie oh i i was an innie and now i'm i'm an outie uh, i i was an outie and now i'm an innie you know about brexit <laughs> no or scotland no no i'm talking about being in the office oh, or see. out of the office right. i think it's going i think that's got some i might have to do a little a little piece on that um the innies and outies uh, to come and you know so the the innies might be thinking wait it's all right for you you don't have to put up with this bloody toxic manager that i have to put up with and all that kind of stuff um but this, who can't uh, cope with all this shit going on oh, oh i've done it again there you go um th- this is where it does get interesting though to your point because if the managers aren't dealing with the toxic culture i you know i i think over the last 10 years most businesses have begun to realize that you don't have a job for life no more. In fact, I think I was reading, this was a couple of years ago now, the average length of service is four and a half years now in a role compared to 18 and a half. Yeah. Um, I think in 1991, I think the previous one was done. So it's a huge change. Um, and it's forcing businesses to innovate quickly to make sure they don't have a toxic culture. Because if you want to get that, even if you want to hit the average score, you've got to do more to do it. Um, I mean, I stayed at my previous role for just under four years. Um, then I was two years because I was headhunted into the four-year job. And then before that, I was four years. And then before that, I was four years. So I do sit around the average duration of service. Um, when I look about the reasons for leaving, um, well, two of them were headhunting. And other ones was I reached my glass ceiling. So I didn't really observe or become aware of a toxic culture but if you were to look at the length of services where people volunteer to leave rather than being exited for underperformance or restructuring or whatever i would be fascinated to know what those reasons for leaving were and if uh, and and not necessarily a binary um yes or no was it down to this but actually on a scale of one to ten you know ten being high in toxic toxicity what was that as a contributing factor and then the line manager as their competence as a leader and their toxicity it'd be really interesting to maybe that's what we do with the listeners at some point as a survey what should we so you've got four kids 
you've got three young boys and you know how do you, how do you prepare for kids and particularly your three young boys how do you prepare them for that life of uncertainty whether they go whether they're innies whether they're outies whether they're innies and outies um maybe what you should do ant hmm. is randomly hmm. at some point um not all of them just take one of them out of school completely completely out of school at the age of 12 um and give them power of attorney um <laughs> and access to your bank account for a year oh god just to handle um the the kind of risks um, and responsibilities and being unconventional and having to do things differently and not like the school says you have to do it. What do you think about that idea? I'm going to step back <laughs> from the brink on this one um, because, of course, if I say yes on records and then my 12-year-old, one of my 12-year-old boys, because my daughter is older than 12, so she's exempt from this, of course, which yeah. therefore means that um, one of my children could listen back to this podcast in 10 years' time going, Dad, what a dick you were for doing that. Look what happened. You were bankrupted in three weeks. Um, so uh, it's a lovely idea, but I do take your point, though, that... I was I was joking. No, no, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm adding drama to make the point. Yeah, no, no, but but I agree. I think, you know, what what do we do to educate the the, the children, our tomor- you know, our, the, the, the taxpayers of tomorrow? Um, t- tomorrow's toxic to, to children. Our yeah. tomorrow's toxic... Come on, what's the headline? Tomorrow's toxic... Taboos. Anyway, that... Anyway, but what is interesting is I suspect that flux is now more than norm and uncertainty is more than norm and your No Normal Leader book also articulates that, that actually, you know, we need to be more comfortable with there not ever being a normal, you know? And I think that what happened over the previous decade was a practice for COVID because financial crashes, internet, remote working, travel, all the, we exploded in a world, in a one world, you know, it's not, it's not a harmonious world, but we're much better connected than we were a decade ago to people due to the nature of even these types of settings. Um, So you would hope that through what our children observe from their parents working remotely, fast paced change daddy's got a new job mummy's got a new job that is that's perfectly understandable my dad ran his own business and then um, he sold that business in when i was 10 and then he worked for another company for three years and then he went to another company and he was there until he retired so again it was that there was never that huge amount of change it was eight ten year tenures at my you know so i think that will help our children understand that and by the way, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, we have a conundrum where, you know, we have a we have three boys, as you say, that are all of school age, young school age, and therefore we have chosen to now spend the next ten years in the school catchment area to make sure we can give them some stability. But is that the wrong thing? Are we setting them up for failure by not relocating wow. randomly to a different yeah. part of the country to show them that you know you have to change and roll with the punches? I was being a little bit facetious, but, um, you know, should one be getting on a yacht and going on a, you know, world, you know, going across the Atlantic and taking them to 
America and getting on a Winnebago and going up to Canada from Los Angeles and, um, you know, should we um, get them out doing some bigger kind of risk taking that we wouldn't normally feel comfortable doing? Um, Have we become more controlling as parents as a result of the uncertainty outside the home? In other words, I would say yes, I think that's true. My dad was quite a disciplined parent as a child, but I could happily take the cover off of something electric and have a fiddle with it without too much of a concern. There were others smoking cigarettes whilst holding a baby in their arms, you know, Mm -hmm. and yet Mm -hmm. today we do none of those things. And, you know, at 10 years old, only 10 years old, my my oldest boy now is allowed to walk to school with a friend. (gasps) But he hasn't got a mobile phone. And that's kind of like, this is really dangerous. This is scary. We're being irresponsible. But actually, we were walking to school at eight years old, fine on the bus on our own at eight years old. But equally, maybe it's because they had certainty at work. They wanted to be able to allow their people, their kids to be a little less, you know, I don't know. It's a huge subject. We, we have a listener question and we've only got seven minutes left. Um, if you are in the audience and want to ask a listener a question, you could submit it now on the Q&A box. Um, we do have a um, submitted question from the live audience. Um, and this one's a good one, actually, JB, if you're ready for it. It is yeah. from a lady called Sonia. No location supplied. If you could talk to yourself on the first day of being a people manager, what would you tell them to do? So this, draw I guess, a, is a piece of advice. Right. Draw a triangle. <laughs> mm-hmm. And an equilateral triangle and put at the top, leader, right-hand corner, coach, left-hand corner, manager, and the upside-down triangle that is left in the middle, I'd put trust. I would then ask yourself, um, when you turn up at meetings... And when you um, present yourself to your team, when is it appropriate for you to be a leader? When is it appropriate for you to be a coach? And when is it appropriate appropriate for you to be a manager? How are you doing on trust? How big is the trust between you and your people? Do you care? Do they care? Do they know you care? Are you consistent? in the way that you turn up or you all over the place are you toxic are you moody um do you have the courage to be honest or do you hide it under the carpet when you've thought about all of those things then come back to another podcast and we'll talk to you about the difference um, between giving direction as a leader and following as a coach and doing what's right for the business as a manager. It's too much to go into now, but there might be sufficient things for you to put onto your triangle right now as pots uh, for going and gathering lots of information about being a great leader being a great manager and being a great coach. They are different things. And when people realize that they're different things Mm. and they're different styles of conversation and communication and collaboration, that would have been a game changer for me uh, when I first started managing people. My response, Sonia, uh, what he said. (laughs) 
Um, That's like that McDonald's ad. Yeah, no, uh, I will only compliment it with if I was talking to myself on my first day of being a people manager. Um, and my piece of advice would be um, being publicly vulnerable is okay. Um, I think um, humility, when you don't know what you don't know around leading people, is okay. Um, now, it might that was my advice to me, then that might not be the case for everybody. Um, but I think sometimes we assume an imposter syndrome ends up dis- disabling us because we don't want to give off the impression that we're not in control. And control isn't always the right thing to do anyway when you first ever leading a team. But um, nonetheless, I think it's, um, for me, I would have probably had a less bumpy start in people management if I'd have been less maybe bullish in my first six months of managing people. Um, and to JB's point, the triangle is very useful. How coach-like was I in my early days of being a manager? Probably zero. Leading? Probably not bad because my energy probably rubbed off on people. But I definitely was a taskmaster initially. And my role, my first role as a manager was not a supervisor. It was indeed a leader of people. Um, and I needed to be all three of those things. So that would be my advice. Uh, anyway, we are nearly at the end of our hour. Um, but before, we didn't really do any small talk at the beginning of this episode because JB was so excited to talk about his article. Um, but what are your plans for your weekend ahead? Because it is, don't forget, Thursday today. So we, the weekend is just one sleep away in a few hours. Um, well, I just want to edit something that I said earlier. Oh. The book that I just saw it on my bookshelf. Oh. They, they, and need, it is, they need a haircut. They do, actually. Do. I mm. think I do, too. Um, the book is A Whole New Mind, Why Right-Brainers Will Rule the Future. I wasn't too far wrong. And it, it's Daniel Pink, and it's a really cool book. And here's a little thing. I just put a little post-it note in. This must have been a couple of years ago. And it says, the conceptual age, uh, an economy built on inventive, empathetic, big picture capabilities. I, I'm, I'm going to go a little bit Panglossian. <laughs> Four times in an episode. Crazy. I'm going to, I'm going to um, focus on that word a tad for the next... 48 hours and think about these changes these tensions um with people going back to work quasi work quasi workplace uh and i'm going to try and think about that in a more positive way because at the moment i I'm finding it quite difficult hearing this this Panglossian view, this sort of whitewash of people just going back to what they think is normal. And I'm not talking about employees. I'm talking about bosses pushing pushing people back into something that I think is going back to an old model. I think we, I am really worried that we're missing the opportunity to do something groundbreaking and something really, really valuable for for the world, work, society, um, big picture. And I, I'm worried that that's not happening. So I'm, I'm going to switch my th- negative um, thinking on it and I'm going to go positive. I'm going to try and work out the the kind of positive stuff that's happening here 
um, and how to grasp it and how to how to how to be part of it working. So that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to focus on. Uh, as well as that, I'm writing uh, my new course content mm -hmm. for No Normal, which I aim to have ready for September. It's flipping hard because I have to sit in my office and look at a flip chart for hours and then put little things on it. Um, and that was my coach who's helping me build this um, massive great infrastructure of course content and so on. It's doing my head in. I've never worked so hard. Um, so with you, I'm doing live stuff. And with Lucy, I'm doing recorded stuff. And it's it's frying my brain, Ant. But it can take it. I can take it. I'm So um, as well as doing all of that, I will be having a few drinks down at the Queen's Head over the weekend with my mates. Um, I might even get my banjo out. I beg your pardon. Okay. On, on that note, have a, have a lovely weekend. <laughs> I think it's time. I think it's time. I think I need to get the old banjo out and have a little, a little twang. A little strum. Yep. And what about you, Ant? That's quite a lot from me. What about you? Dad Taxi. Um, we have football matches with one of the boys. Um, I think um, we're having a relatively chilled weekend this weekend because we've been flat out the last two weekends with outside experiences. Uh, it's mine and my wife's wedding anniversary today, so we're doing something for oh, lunch tomorrow. And happy anniversary! Thanks, nine years. Um, I feel I should have known that. No, uh, no, um, you shouldn't have done. We talked about. Uh, I actually was going to make a point of it at the beginning. Birthday. Um, that you, you your wife's gave, birthday. Yeah, you gave up Chris. But wife's birthday was last weekend. Yes, I know, yeah. I know, and, and I, I should have asked. Strategically, we got married three days after her birthday, so that I would never forget the wedding anniversary. On the okay. on the birthday, I know it's only three days away. So if I forgot the birthday, which is impossible, because um, uh, she does a big build up to it, but the anniversary, fine. I've been Anthony Price. And I've been JB, and I'm. I, it's fantastic that you stayed with us. Um, and I think both an Ant and I have a Panglossian view now uh, for the weekend to prepare us for a jolly time uh, ahead. And I look forward to seeing you again, same time, same place, next week. Goodbye. <laughs>